be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in musical worship. And uh, now we give our attention to the Word of God, and we want to worship through the Word as we submit ourselves to its powerful teaching here today. And um, so I'm going to... I'm going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, many of you know that last week we kind of had like the, the snow Sunday. We weren't quite sure what was going to happen, and so we kind of did the big switcheroo, and we preached on something other than what I'd planned on preaching on. I said it was all dangerous because I walked into the pulpit with two sermons ready to go. It could have been a long, long Sunday last week, but uh, I decided just to go with one of them, and now we get the residue of what was going to be there last week. And uh, we're picking up in the book of James, James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, so make sure you turn there today. Um, Today we're going to be talking about one of the hardest areas of our lives that needs to be renewed. So I just want to let us all know that this is hard stuff, and we're we're venturing into some very difficult waters here today. But I want to review where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, Our big idea two weeks ago was this, words contain creative power that can bring about life or death. And we've been in this section of James for three weeks now, and we're going to finish in it next week. We've been in the same 12 verses for four weeks in a row. It just demonstrates the importance of our words. Words contain creative power that can bring about life or death. And we said in that sermon that what, is, that what comes out of our mouths is really sourced in our hearts. We have to reckon with that fact. In fact, it's a main teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, where he says this, the good person Out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. So whatever is in your heart is eventually going to seep through your mouth, right? And Or maybe your nonverbal communication with people. What comes out of our mouth is sourced in our hearts. We can either help people or we can hurt people with our words. Paul Tripp said this, and I'm going to quote him again this week, I did two weeks ago, that you have never spoken a neutral word in your life. Our words have direction to them. They're moving in a direction of either life or death. Last time we were in this passage, James chapter 3 verse 5 says, it talks about how our tongues can boast of great things. And what James means by that is our words have a substantial amount of power. Like you have no idea how something so small like your tongue could formulate words and have such a powerful impact, a gigantic impact on those around you. And so James says your tongue can boast about great things and the Proverbs tell us this, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life. Last time we were together and we talked out of this passage, we said that our words have an incredible amount of power to create life in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And hopefully, hopefully, I charged us all to do this, hopefully all of your efforts beginning to put good things into the soil of other people's lives will start to germinate and eventually will produce a harvest of righteousness that benefits them and it will benefit you and us as a whole church But I want to remind you that this isn't an instant fix. All of this takes time. You might say, well, for the last two weeks I've been putting good things in the lives of other people. Where's my harvest? Well, well, it's not an instant fix. You've probably been putting a lot of bad stuff for a long time. All right? 
But I want to remind you of a biblical principle that is filled with eventual hope. So Galatians 6 says this, Let us not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in it. For in due season we will reap if you don't give up. So then, as we have an opportunity, we have opportunities every day to open up our mouths. Let us do good to everyone. And look at this. And especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The way we talk to one another, about one another, and to one another is incredibly important for the unification of the body of Christ, and especially your marriages and families, especially to the household of faith, is what Paul points out. So don't give up. Don't give up. Keep at it. Keep planting words in the lives of those around you that can build them up, that will fit the occasion, will give grace to everyone who hears, speaking in this way that is filled with truth and love will produce a harvest in due season. So please listen, don't give up. Keep at it. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. We talked about what we needed to start doing. And today we transition and we're going to see what we need to stop doing. What do we need to stop doing? That's what James is going to point out to us today. And this is a hard message. I know it's hard and I hope it's hope-filled I told somebody this last week that this is a message that's filled with truth and fire and hopefully a lot of grace. So stick with it till the very end. Because this week we're going to see that our words can also have the potential to create a, 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 a great amount of death in our lives. Today we're going to continue on in our passage and look at the next few verses and we're going to see what James has to say about the destructive power of our words, and then we want to identify some of those sins of the tongue that might be in our lives, and I want to take note of them, and I want to take note especially about how they can ravage our most precious relationships. So with fear and trembling, let's look at James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, that says this. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, says... So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would add your blessing to those who read and then hear and desire to obey this word. And certainly it's a hard word. God, even as I stand here in front of these people and in front of the online community, God, I am humbled by the reality of James chapter 3, verse 1, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so, God, even here, my, my heart confessing, I even confess throughout the duration of the sermon that I fall short in this capacity, in this way in my life so often. And so, God, I want to acknowledge that right from the beginning. And I pray that we would see clearly what your word is calling us to do. Help us to feel the fire of it. Help us to feel the truth of it. But then also help us to experience the grace of the wonder 
of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're warned. <laughs> we're warned about the difficulty of, of navigating our way through this passage. Um, some of you have pointed out, you notice that uh, the life group questions are pretty intense this week. So they are. I just want to let you know they are, but this is an area that needs to be worked on. Like I said, it's one of the hardest areas of our lives to be renewed, but we have to stick with it and work at it. Look at James chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We highlighted this two weeks ago, but the beautiful creative writing of James continues here. Once again, notice it. He says that the tongue is a, he uses the word micros member. It's a very small part of the body, yet it can produce megas type things. It's a very small member, but it boasts of great things, has great potential. Well, like what? The next thing he says in the text is actually really hard for us to see in English, but once again, the creative writing is impressive in Greek, as once again, he uses an imperative injunction, meaning, behold. Last time we looked at it, it was, behold, the ships, remember. But this time he says, behold, the great forests, they're all set ablaze by a very, very small fire. Behold, the massive, old-growth forests of the world will all eventually be reduced to a smoldering pile of ashes if just a small, uncontrolled fire breaks out, is what he says. And we live in Washington, the evergreen state. Wipe them all out. If an uncontrolled fire breaks out. He wants us to see the danger our words are capable of. If we have no control over them, they have the potential to set ablaze everything that we hold dear. So connect for a moment. Do not take this lightly. I'm warning you with all the sternness that I can muster here today. The way that you use your words can ruin your reputation. They can ruin your career. Kids, the way that you use your words can damage or destroy your relationship with your parents or your peers. Parents, Listen, you can shatter your relationship with your kids with your words. So on and so forth. We can, with our words, drive a wedge so deep into our relationships with our spouses that they're so severely damaged that outside of a great work of God, they will be dismantled and ruined You can watch all of those relationships that I just talked about that God has blessed you with go up in flames and watch them turn into smoke and ash by the end of your days and maybe even sooner than that. And then you will say, what have I done? That was not what I wanted to have happen. That was way too costly. 
I want us to think about the iconic scene from Home Alone. Most of us have probably seen it. It's when Kevin is in the church and he sees old man Marley. Remember that guy? That, that creepy guy down the street, right? They tell stories about. Kevin's initially scared, but the old man Marley tells him not to be afraid. And then he begins to have a conversation with him about why he's there in the first place. And then they begin to share about their awkward family dynamics, Kevin and old man Marley. This is what Marley says. Deep down, you always love them. But you can forget that you love them, and you can hurt them, and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You know, you want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Kevin says, sure. Marley says, I came here to hear my granddaughter sing. I can't come and hear her tonight. Kevin says, you have plans? Marley says, no, I'm not welcome. Kevin says, at church? <laughs> Marley says, oh, you're always welcome at church. Let me, that's true. That's true. People are always, always, always welcome here. Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. Years back, before you and your family moved on the block, I had an argument with my son. Kevin says, how old is he? Marley said, oh, he's grown up. We lost our tempers, and I said I didn't care to see him anymore. And he said the same, and we haven't spoken to each other since. This is, this is the saddest moment in the movie for me because you see an old, misunderstood, broken man in misery, and he's a man filled with remorse on Christmas Eve because of the words that he let come out of his mouth years ago that cost him nearly a lifetime of memories with his boy and his daughter-in-law and his grandkids. And some of you know exactly what old man Marley was feeling in that scene because you're playing the role of old man Marley in your real life and you're reeling in sorrow over something you have said to those you love and it's resulted in you being all alone. And so with all the pastoral care that I can muster, I want to say to you, I'm so sorry. I'm talking to parents that have kids that want nothing to do with them because of words. And I want to tell you there's hope there. And I'd love to interact with you personally on that if that's your case. Because this is what James says, James 3, 6, he says, and the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. And you're like, yeah, I, I see that. I see that. I said this two weeks ago when we read this passage for the first time. This is very intense language here. James enlists the word hell, Gehenna. This is in reference to the valley of Gehinnom outside of Jerusalem. This was a burning trash heap. This is where they threw garbage and lit it on fire. That's what your mouth is doing in your life. It also had a stigma attached to it because that was the place where people offered their children and sacrificed to the pagan god of Molech. You're like, that's dark, that's, that's crazy. And we're not even going to get into that today, but that's what we're doing sometimes with our tongues. We are sacrificing the relationships that we have with our loved ones to get our point across or whatever it might be. Trust me, one day when we get into the pagan god of Molech, it will horrify you 
We're not going to do that today. But how and why does James use the word hell here? Is James talking about hell is the source of our sins of the tongue? Or is hell the destination where the sins of the tongue will eventually end up being appropriately burned? There's a textual question there that a lot of commentators struggle with. Is hell the source of the sins of the tongue or is it the destination where they'll be punished? Is the root of the sins of the tongue sourced in hell like was our tongue set on fire by hell and then we did nothing to put it out and so it destroys everything we love? Well, Jesus did say in John chapter 8, 44, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we do know from this passage that the source of all lies comes from the father of lies So maybe hell is the source of where all this stuff comes from. Or did James mean that the appropriate judgment, the appropriate punishment that will fit the crime is to have our tongues burn in the flames of hell? This also seems plausible. The tongue that starts the fire, that sets the great forest ablaze, will come full circle and will itself be punished by the flames of hell, Gehenna. We also see Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every single one of them, give an account for it. Why would you say that one? For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So we can be condemned for what comes out of our mouths, and the appropriate punishment is the flames of hell. James could have meant either one, And honestly, I'm not sure exactly which one he had in mind, but what I do know is that neither option sounds very appealing to me. Whether my speech was sent here by hell to accomplish hell's purposes for destruction, or me and my unrepentant destructive speech will eventually be sent to hell to be forever tormented in eternity, either of those options sound terrible, and I don't want any part of it. There's a lot at stake, James is saying. And so today, I want to give some examples of horrific, destructive death speech. What might James be referring to? Because he's not specific in this passage. And I want to look at a few of these destructive death speech patterns and then take the last two verses of our passage and see if there's anything that can be done about these things. So what are some of the common sins of the tongue? This is not going to be exhaustive. I'm just... I'm kind of picking and choosing different things that I see wreaking havoc in the lives of people. Because when words are weaponized, I say, watch out. When words are weaponized, watch out. And so I want to start with a passage that we looked at two weeks ago, Ephesians 4.29, where Paul tells the Ephesians, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We talked about the second half of that verse. Let's talk about the first part. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What is corrupting talk? Well, the word Paul uses means harmful or rotten. Don't let harmful, rotten speech come out of your mouth. Don't let something come out of your mouth that might harm people or rot other people. Just a few weeks back when I was preparing the sermon, I was looking at news headlines, and this one caught my eye. 
I think you can see this one. Harvard-trained psychologist, if you use any of these toxic phrases, your relationship is in trouble. Now, this is a completely secular source. And the writer says, as a Harvard-trained psychologist, right? Like, okay, good, (laughs) right? Who works with couples? This is what they say. Who works with couples? I've seen relationships quickly go downhill when one or both partners speak to each other with contempt. I'm not even going to tell you the eight phrases because that's neither here nor there. Just that first sentence, if partners speak to each other with contempt, contempt is dangerous because it not only attacks a person's character, but it assumes a position of superiority over them. When we communicate this way, we might treat others with disrespect. We might mock them with sarcasm or ridicule them or even just use dismissive body language such as eye rolling and scoffing. Look, even worldly wisdom and philosophies of this age have enough common grace infused into them by God that for some of them, they're able to understand that our words and even our nonverbal communication can be toxic. How much more the word of God? So once again, the sticks and stones proverb just doesn't make sense in our world today. So what are some examples of toxic speech? The first one that I came up with is lying. Some of you just kind of had your stomach turn. Do not ignore the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be, first and foremost, I'm going to confess things to you today because I recognize that we all have things to work on here. Because by far, this is the most prominent category of deadly words that is talked about in the Proverbs and that we're tempted to use in our daily lives, by far. So the Proverbs say this, Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. What you need to see is that your lying is repugnant to God. It makes God want to vomit. And your dishonest speech and my dishonest speech comes out in many forms Sometimes we blatantly deceive people. Sometimes we fail to reveal the whole truth about a matter and just tell a little bit of it and just get them off your scent. Sometimes we're very crafty and attempt to avoid certain topics because we're actually trying to hide something. Sometimes we use flattery to manipulate people to work our will. All of these are forms of deceit and dishonest speech. This is so heinous. Because lying is a fundamental attribute of Satan. And to lie is to align yourself with the way that he goes about his business. These are things that we must put away. Actually, Paul assumes that followers of Jesus put this type of speech away. That's why he says in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, this is just obvious to, like we, that has to be put away. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So look, as Christians, we need to live our lives in a way that demonstrates we are following the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. 
but we're so often tempted for whatever reason to use deception with those closest to us. And when we do, we are actually living like the devil, who according to Jesus was the father of lies. We already looked at that passage a few moments ago. So here is a rather straightforward, non-debatable sentence that is worthy of full acceptance by every true child of God. Don't pattern your life after Satan, who was the father of lies. Pattern your life after Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. Simple. No debating that. But we're so tempted there. In the moments, think about this. Think about the reality of this. In the moments that we use deceit, we are actually in opposition to Christ and his purposes. So in those moments, we're actually following in the footsteps of the Antichrist and not the Christ. Let that resound for a moment. That's what we're talking about. Deceptive, deceitful, destructive speech like lying. Sometimes we're tempted to say that everything is fine when they really aren't. You know what's really difficult to resolve? Conflicts, sin issues, when you're pretending that what's really there isn't there. And if you do this, I want you to know that you are using deceit. And here comes the truth. This is where I struggle. This is me. The one preaching, this is me. This is where I'm tempted. When I do that, I'm not a person of my word. I'm so tempted often to do this, so often. And I honestly don't think that I'm the only one in the room, but I'll be the one leading the charge. And I want to tell you, there was a period of my life when I was personally struggling with a sin issue, and because of fear and because of pride, I wasn't honest with Suzanne about it. And so not only did I have a sin issue, I compounded it by adding another one on top of it. I was deceiving her, and the conviction from the Lord was heavy. I'm talking like Psalm 32 heavy, like God pressing down on me. It felt like my bones were like wasting away. I felt like I was groaning all day long. And in that season, God was so gracious to me because he gave me a mental image of what was happening. And let me paint it for you. This kind of replayed over and over in my mind multiple times in that season. It was as if each passing day, I was taking a strong and hard, rough, concrete cinder block block. And I was slathering mortar on it. And I was stacking it in a brick pattern, constructing a brick wall between me and Suzanne. As day after day, I was constructing that wall And I was constructing that wall to protect my life of secret sin and to keep her away from sniffing it out. And it weighed heavy on me. That eventually my wall was so heavy it couldn't withstand its own weight. And God said, no more. And he allowed that wall of deception to come crumbling down as I finally opened up my mouth and I started telling her the truth. People, it was devastating. My relationship with her looked like those piles of rubble that you see in Turkey and Syria after the earthquakes hit. There was destruction, there was devastation, there was damage, there was death everywhere. Why? 
because I deceived the one that I was supposed to be 100% honest with. And God cannot be mocked. And a man will reap what he sows. So here's two words of strong admonition and exhortation. For those of you tempted to string together a web of lies to use against those you care about, don't do it. Second message is this. For those of you already entangled in a web of lies that you have constructed and that have kept you from experiencing relational intimacy with those you love, stop doing it. Stop. I want you to pay attention to the words that I'm saying right now. I want you to listen closely to my words and not let them out of your mind, but keep them within your heart because they will prove to be the way of life for you. You must put away falsehood. You must put them all away. Everyone. If you want to be someone who's following in the footsteps of the one who's the way, the truth, and love, who promises abundant life. And here's the thing, if you need help, that's why we have pastors on staff. That's why we have elders and leaders to walk with you through whatever you might need to walk through once the truth comes out. That's why we're training dozen people to help in these things because unfortunately, these things are so, so common. And I know I'm not the only one. You'll never able to carry your secret. Your secret is carrying you and it's dragging you off to a place that you don't want to go. So start kicking and screaming and demanding that it let go of you. And the way you do that is by telling the truth. Lying. What's another example? Angry words. Angry words. One author I was reading as I was preparing this pointed out by their count, there was at least 50 verses in Proverbs that speak about anger and wrath. Contentious, harsh, nagging, criticizing speech is warned against all over the place. And I'm just going to share a few that relate to how harsh and angry words can destroy a marriage relationship. This can destroy any relationship, but I want to focus primarily just on marriage today. And I'm going to start with the wives, and I'm going to end with the husbands. And I'm going to try not to add any further comment to these verses, but simply hope that you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in these next few moments. So that you begin the process of repentance and later on today, maybe you will do the work of confessing to your spouse how you fall short of the standard of pure speech. So here goes, stuff that we don't want to read about, but it's nice to hear that there's truth here. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and a fretful woman. Ouch. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16 a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind and to grasp oil in one's right hand. Man, you feel pretty good right now, right? You're not off the hook. Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-four: Make no friendship with a man given to anger, 
nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Because Proverbs 16 verse 27 says, A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Men, your angry speech has turned you into a worthless man. Do you want your wife to be your friend, your best friend? Then you must put away your angry speech. Why? Because the, man, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We must put away our angry, contentious, harsh, nagging, criticizing words. We must put them all away. Gossip and slander. This stuff is so subtle as it's often cloaked in concerned care for other people, but it's really fake and it's really destructive. We're not going to really talk much about gossip and slander today because we're going to take time to look at it in chapter 4 as he specifically mentions these words. But for now, we need to know that these sins are actions or statements that we use suggesting that we have all the facts concerning a matter, and so then we're going to pass judgment on others and begin damaging the other person's reputation. Sometimes we call it character assassination. Sometimes we call it defamation of character. Look, these things are considered crimes in our society and punishable by civil law. These sins should not even be named among us who are supposed to say only that which builds others up fits the occasion and gives grace to those who hear. So we're going to talk more about that as we get into chapter 4 of James. But for right now, I want you to know that gossip and slander are deadly. And so today will by no means be an exhaustive list of the sins of the tongue, and I'm just going to highlight some of the most common ones today that we're so tempted to struggle with or have become ensnared in to the point that it just becomes natural for us to talk these ways. And some of these sins we don't even put up any fight against anymore. We've been given over to them. And the final corrosive death speech that I want to highlight today is the sin of grumbling. Grumbling is not, some of you just don't want to make eye contact up here. I, I get it. I'll just do this the rest of it. It's like, I, I get it. I get it. I have to say these things in front of all of you. Grumbling is not just the sin of the Israelites in the desert. We're so guilty of using our mouths in this way as well. It's true that the Israelites were starving and thirsty and frustrated that from their perspective, the God who led them out of Egyptian slavery had abandoned them to die in the desert. Has anyone ever felt like that? I do. And the Israelites were only focused on their circumstances and they essentially became guilty of what we read about of the proud man in Psalm chapter 10 verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. These Israelites and we too often forget about God. And when we forget about him, it's really easy to grumble about everything. Why this why that? How in the world could this? How in the world could that? So on and so forth, and our proud, arrogant hearts come spilling out of our mouths in grumbling words. Anyone convicted yet? At least in one of these areas. These are just some sins of the mouth. I just kind of picked out some common ones that I know I struggle with. And we need to move into a time of asking God to help purify us from these sins 
And before we do that, we need to see how utterly dependent we are upon God for his interventions. And this will be accomplished as we read the disheartening, truth-filled verses that James writes to finish off this passage. Consider this. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And from that position of conviction and despair, I want to move into a time of confession and repentance as we sing an old chorus before we finish off the sermon time today. So I just want to invite you to close your eyes and remain seated. And I want to sing with you an old chorus called Refiner's Fire that asks God to do the work of purifying us from sins that have made us unholy and have caused destruction in our lives. And so some of you might know the word, some of you might not, but this is a time of confession as we confess that we are utterly helpless and desperately needing God to do his work of intervening in our lives to purify us from all of our sin. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and sing this old chorus together and move into a time of repentance and confession as we're seated. Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be as gold, pure gold, refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master. I'm ready to do your will. Sing it again. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from within and make me holy. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from my sin. Deep within, refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master. Ready to do your will. I'm ready to do your will.
I want to address the obvious feeling of despair that might be setting in today. And this isn't really the benediction, this is really the final point of the sermon. So we'll take about five to eight minutes to go through it here. But I want to address the obvious feeling of despair that might be settling in. Maybe you've tried and you've failed over and over and over again to get control of your words to no avail. Maybe you can look back on your path and you can see a broad path of destruction in your wake and you can feel isolated and alone and the knowledge of your sin has become too much to bear for you. I want you to know that the awareness of your sin is not something that should lead you to despair. Your knowledge of your sin should lead you to the cross where once again you can observe a wonderfully competent, gracious Savior who died for the sins of your tongue and offers you his costly, gracious mercy at no charge to you. So don't sit there alone in your despair. Go to Jesus with it. And I want you to go to Jesus with your untamable tongue and see if he can do for you what he did for the man that we read about in Mark chapter 5. So listen to these words. Mark 5 verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Demazo him. And I point this word out to you because it's important. Subdue. It means to bring under restraint or control, to keep it in check. In this account, there was no shackle sufficient to hold this demonic possessed man down, right? No chain could constrain this man who was untamable. Not even a gathered group of men were strong enough and possessed enough power to keep this man with an unclean spirit from self-inflicted destruction. As we read in Mark 5, 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man, untamable man, was always experiencing agonizing sorrow always inflicting pain and destruction into his own life, and he was helpless. So you know what this man does. 5-6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And the rest of the story tells us that he received the healing that he needed that no other system could provide And he became the showcase of God's strength and glory. As the end of the story says, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled, why do I tell you this story? The word that Mark uses in this story, demazo, is the exact same word we see in our text of James 3. 
James 3, 7, it says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be demodzo and has been demodzo by mankind, tamed. But no human being can demodzo the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can't tame your tongue any more than that demon-possessed man could free himself from his oppression. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why that story is there. This is probably why James uses the verbiage he uses. Your dirty, rotten, lying, slanderous, gossip, flattery-filled, angry, grumbling, speech-filled mouth can be changed by the power of King Jesus. And if you let him change your heart, your mouth will be affected, and everyone in your life will take notice, and they will say and wonder what happened to you. And then you can take your mouth that was once used for cursing and death, and you can use it to bless and bring life back into your world and the world of others as you say, the only way I experienced any freedom and redemption from my destructive speech was through the sacrifice of the one who once had curse-filled, hate-filled mouths hurling insults at him while he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Proverbs says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Guard your mouth. Preserve your life. Guard it with the power of King Jesus, who was able to tame the man untamable that was creating self-inflicted wounds on his life. And we do the same thing with our tongue time and time again. Stop. In the power of King Jesus, stop. That's available to you. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would guard our mouths by the power of the Holy Spirit, by King Jesus who was able to tame the man who is untamable, that no system, no chain, no shackle could hold down even the strength of Dozens of men could not withhold this guy from destroying his very skin with stones. And we find ourselves in the exact same position except we destroy our lives with our words. Would I, Lord, we need your help. We need your help. And we thank you for the body of Christ that can come alongside us and help us in our time of need as well. So God, I pray that as this truth was spoken, and it's hard truth, but productive truth because now we can take what we heard and fall into the conviction of the spirit and just recognize that there's areas that need to be reformed and changed and you by your grace can meet us here and change those things so that we can become objects of your mercy and grace and other people could say what happened to him and we can start to plant good words in the lives of people around us and we can trust in the process of seed time and harvest and see good things coming up in our future So God, I pray that you'd be gracious now as we move into a time of going our separate ways. And I pray that that conviction would be heavy to the point where we confess and repent and turn and forsake from our sins. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look, I recognize that this is a hard message. And I recognize that you could still feel despair and discomfort. And so that's why 
I'm employed. <laughs> That's why we have biblical counselors being trained. That's why we have elders. We want to help you with this. Please let us know of your need to come alongside you and care for you. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.